Hey, it's the Monday podcast. I was out at the White House on Friday when the president found out about the Supreme Court. Uh, I'll tell you about that and why I think that Joe Biden said we're going to replace even the doorknobs because it's riddled with uh, COVID at the White House. I'll tell you what that really was about. Um, Also, we have uh, Alan West joining us today on the podcast. He talks a little bit about what seems like we should secede. He actually says it's the exact opposite of that. We explain it. We talk about the best history book that should be on everyone's list to buy this holiday season. Get it for every child, every grandchild. Get it for your home and keep it. It is the best called The American Story, The Beginnings, and it's by David Barton. David stops by to talk about that. And we uh, delve a little bit uh, deeper into the Christmas giving. We do. And uh, we also look at a new website, Mm -hmm. glenbeckart.com. That's something worth checking out. Yeah. And I think Stu said it best when he's like, you know, it's really surprising when I look at COVID Gothic, which is one of my my pieces that you can buy. uh, He said, when I look at COVID Gothic, uh, it looks like it's actually good. <laughs> I'm very supportive. That's, I, that's the way I, I think I should put that review on <laughs> glenbeckart.com. All right, here's a podcast. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program. My wife and I were supposed to go to the White House Christmas party on uh, Friday and, um, uh, she needed to stay home uh, and take care of some things at the house. So I took my youngest daughter, Cheyenne, uh, to the Christmas party. And we asked for a tour of the West Wing before the party because she has never been there. And it's kind of an extra special thing. And I wanted to show her uh, the West Wing myself. And so we went in and we went about an hour early. And we were in uh, the West Wing, which is where the Oval Office is. And we were standing in, I think it was Roosevelt Room or the Cabinet Room. uh, And the president uh, went into the Oval Office. And he was in there with Mike Pence and uh, Mark Meadows. And uh, I found out later, that's when they found out uh about the supreme court we were out in the rose garden and you know my daughter and i could see into the oval by the way melania trump has just been so maligned so maligned uh the rose garden is spectacularly beautiful even in the winter it is really i mean it the pictures just don't do it justice it's just really beautiful um anyway so we were there and we could see and let's just say the faces weren't happy uh, in the Oval Office at that point. The president didn't make it to the White House Christmas party and it kind of uh, there was a kind of a pall over the Christmas party because everybody knew by the time all the guests arrived, everybody had heard what the Supreme Court said. Uh, I was with a couple of the AGs from the different states uh, nobody really understands why the Supreme Court just didn't hear it. What do you mean you don't have standing? What does that mean? I'd like to know. So how, does, how, how do other states, how do 21 states file a suit and it's not even heard 
See, that's the problem. That's the problem. And that's why people will not get over this because they're not being heard. We don't feel like there has been anyone who has def- actually defended, went to Washington. How many Tea Party people did we did we send to Washington? And how many of them turned on us? How many of them did nothing? Now, we send Donald Trump. And some of us, I didn't think he'd do it. I didn't think he'd do it at all. He did it. He stood the entire time and he went to bat for millions of Americans who have not been listened to probably almost for the last 20 years. We haven't been listened to Barack Obama. Well, I think we should listen to every you didn't listen to us. Not once did you listen to us. Not once did you ask to meet with anyone. Not once. You made fun of us. The press made fun of us. Then they went after Donald Trump, unlike anything I have ever seen. It's obscene what was done to him. And why was it done? Because he was actually listening to us and was actually standing against the corruption. He was just a wrecking ball. I saw an article today that, that somebody called him a bulldozer and a bulldozer doesn't uh, bulldozers never end well in a in a city where finesse is needed. No, no, I'm tired of finesse. Anybody else tired of finesse? Can we find another bulldozer? Because I'd go for a bulldozer and a crane and a wrecking ball. And, you know, maybe there's a couple of buildings that really need to be take, taken down. In fact, with an exception of the museums, all of those buildings that FDR built in the 1940s. Anyway, uh, so I'm wondering who does have standing in this? Because imagine, imagine that we're all in a classroom and we all know the rules. And, and there are 50 of us. And we are all taking a test, except four have special conditions. So we're taking the test. We all have to have it done within an hour. We all have to uh, be monitored. We have to be in the same room. So we have a teacher looking sure, make sure we're not cheating and no calculators. But we find out later that Four of the students, eh, the time didn't really matter. They didn't have anybody looking over them. And there's pretty good feeling that they probably used calculators. And we're all graded on a curve. And because of those four getting perfect scores, my A has gone to a B or my C has gone to a D. Wouldn't I, as somebody in the classroom, have standing to raise my hand and say, excuse me, what they did affected my grade. Uh, I'd like just to at least talk about what they did. If you didn't, you weren't allowed to at least talk about it and be heard, heard legitimately. You'd never get over it. You'd never get over it. By the Supreme Court saying we don't have standing, 21 states don't have standing. Now, 
Maybe there's no case. I don't know. I know we were promised a case. I haven't really seen the case, but nobody's hearing anything. By not hearing the case, you don't have Thomas, Coney Barrett, Scalia, not Scalia, um, yeah, Alito. Alito. Uh, you don't have Alito actually on record, trusted friends, trusted people on record saying, we heard all of the evidence. There isn't anything. Now, you do have Alito and Thomas saying that in so many words, there's nothing here to to really warrant us hearing it. But that's not good enough in this case. The Supreme Court should have heard this case. Because how do we come together and heal? Because the people feel that we have been wronged every step of the way. And when I say we, anyone who has supported Donald Trump and many people support Donald Trump because of how he was treated in office. I've met several people who voted against him, voted for Hillary Clinton, were Democrats and said, after I heard all the things, I decided to do my own homework, and I can't believe the lies that were told about him. America likes the underdog. America has always supported the underdog. America, uh, much to the uh, surprise of those on the left, Americans do like justice. They like it when the little guy wins. So I'm there in the White House, and it's not really a party atmosphere, but it was really nice. About halfway through, they said uh, the president and the first lady are not going to be uh, attending tonight. And you would think that a room full of people that flew all the way across from everywhere in the country would be disappointed. Everyone said I completely understand that. I wouldn't come downstairs either. People traps traipsing around in my house all the time. And then I got to go put on a happy face after I just got this news. Everyone completely understood. Now. I have a deeper understanding of what Biden did this weekend. Biden said that he was going to exercise the White House. Because it's riddled with COVID. And he was going to fumigate. And he wants people to come in with hazmat suits. And they'll tear up all the carpet and everything. And they will just sanitize that place. All the way down, it says, to replacing the doorknobs. Let me tell you what that really is about. President-elect Biden is set to move in to the 55,000-square-foot mansion after his January 21st inauguration, but he is insisting that the 132-room property be thoroughly disinfected beforehand. 
White House historian Kate Anderson Brower said there's only a five hour window between presidents. And I have another story. Remind me about the Clintons uh, and the five hour window. Um, There's only a five hour window uh, between presidents. That's when 95 staff have to pick up all of the Trump possessions and move the Bidens in. They will clean and replace everything. Biden is insisting that a team in hazmat suits will spray the entire residence with disinfectant after Trump leaves, remove the carpets, curtains and furniture all the way down to replacing the doorknobs. Now, Stu, there's five hours between anybody Trump in that in that house. How long does COVID last on a metal surface? Yeah. Especially at, at a level that could infect someone. Correct. Right? I mean, that you can discover it uh, later on, but uh, the idea that it's going to sit there for five hours or sit in the air for five hours and infect someone is uh, beyond the scope of likely. Uh, right. <laughs> so don't you think mm-hmm. changing the doorknobs Seems a little odd, doesn't it? First, I mean, even if you believed and you were legitimately worried about it, uh, you would just spray down the doorknobs or clean them with disinfectant. And it's not like you're going to, uh, you know, Home Depot and buying a bunch of cheap doorknobs. No. Right. Definitely not. Okay. So replace the doorknobs. Why was that said? This is my theory, but I only have this theory because I took a picture of something in the oval uh, sorry in the uh, west wing and i notice little things now i've been to the west wing before and they've had these little tiny like colonial doorknobs these little oval little teeny ones you would think the man with such small hands as they always said (laughs) would like the teeny doorknobs they had but he didn't and he said they said the first day that he was into office he said Really? These are the doorknobs we have here? And they're like, yes, Mr. President. He said, I'll take care of that. I took a picture of all of the doorknobs now in the White House. Look at this picture. They are absolutely beautiful. Uh, I think they're solid brass. And it says the president, the seal of the president of the United States and has the eagle in the center. Donald Trump put all of those in. Okay. When they said, and we're even going to remove the doorknobs, I am convinced it was a, a jab directed directly personally to him. We will erase everything you have done. Everything. That's the kind of people you're dealing with. There's no reason to remove the doorknobs unless you're sending a message you were never here. I, that's interesting because there's certainly no justification to do it when it comes to COVID. I mean, that, there's no reason. To, <laughs> I mean, it's completely ridiculous. Obviously, that would mean. What would that mean to the society if every time someone had COVID and was in a room, you couldn't you touch had to a door. doorknobs? I mean, it would be insanity. It's, obviously, it's ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous, and they know it's ridiculous. But there's got to be some other message behind it, and that's interesting. I mean, I don't know. I had never heard that about the doorknobs before. I've never heard it either. I honestly, I am calling the White House today and finding out if I can buy one, just for the museum. Oh yeah, they are 
they're spectacular. They, they, are, they are truly, truly beautiful doorknobs and totally appropriate. And I wouldn't, I mean, most people would walk by and they would never notice unless you grab the door of, you know, and open up one of the doors, which I wasn't doing. Hey, is this the Oval Office? Let me just open <laughs> hey, it up. Hey, SETCOM! <laughs> hey! Uh, he didn't do that. No. Uh, didn't do that. Um, but uh, I, I think that's absolutely what it is. Now, President Trump says he is going to declassify everything with the lying and the treason, uh, you know, in, in his words, the Democrat lying and treason. Uh, I think he should go further than that. I think he should declassify a lot of stuff, especially the alien. You want stuff. alien stuff? Don't I you? want alien mm-hmm. yeah. stuff. I really want alien <laughs> stuff. But he should. He should declassify everything. He That's- says he's going to. He should. Why wouldn't he? Why shouldn't he? Don't we have a right to know this stuff? Don't we have a right to know? It's never coming out. It will never, ever come out. It will be declassified until probably 2065 when we're all dead. And then it'll come out and people will go, my gosh, they did this? <laughs> there are certain powers that are pretty cool if you're the president. Like I have was I, the pardon power. I think Trump is underutilized. I would be doing it all the time. <laughs> Every couple days, there'd be a new person I'd be pardoning. I would find out people that I didn't like that were in legal disputes with someone else. And then I would find that third party, even if they were guilty, and I'd pardon them anyway, just to piss off the people <laughs> that I didn't like. <laughs> I, would, I would be, it would be pardon palooza for me. Really? Yes. So if you really hated me and somebody had murdered my wife, mm-hmm. you would pardon the murderer just <laughs> to piss me off. It's a pretty extreme well, case, but yes, <laughs> that's exactly yes, what I would do. But yes, okay, <laughs> good. It. I like that. I think, look, it's his unquestioned I power, hope you don't basically. ever become president. No, I would honestly. be a terrible president because <laughs> I would do this stuff all the time. Uh, yeah. I would look for, pardoning, I mean, would be the greatest thing. I would like, if a... Uh, if I was angry at a sports team, I would I would pardon like if one team won, the other team lost. I would pardon everyone on the losing team if I was mad at the winning team. I would go I would go to ridiculous again. Lengths. It's boiling down to murder. You're letting yeah, murder. I, I want murderers everywhere. <laughs> all those, but all the murderers all the would murder. like me. And they'd all be on my team. If you want a bunch of people on your team, you want murderers on your side. Trust me. The best of the Glenn Beck program. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West on uh, with us. Now, he is the guy who delivered uh, Texas and fought real hard. The things that are going here in Texas, going on with the uh, with the Democratic Party, shady games, uh, millions and millions and millions of dollars coming into the state to flip it blue. He kept it red. Welcome, Alan West. How are you? Hey, it's good to be with you, Glenn, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. So you said something uh, this weekend, if I may quote, Supreme Court in tossing Texas lawsuit that was joined by 17 states, 106 U.S. congressmen, has decreed the state can take an unconstitutional action and violate its own election law, resulting in damaging effects on the other states that abide by the law, while the guilty state suffers no consequence. This decision establishes as a president uh, precedent that says states can violate the U.S. Constitution and not be held accountable. 
This decision will have far-reaching ramifications for the future of our constitutional republic. Perhaps law-abiding states should bond together and form a union of states that will abide by the Constitution. I'm for that. I'd like to know what you mean by that. Well, it's very simple, Glenn, and I know that there are some people that have shown their ignorance and incompetence saying that I'm calling for secession, when actually the people that are violating and not following the Constitution are the seditionists and those uh, that are advocating secession. The bottom line is that how will states be able to protect themselves? If by our Constitution, if states have a grievance and they do have a First Amendment right to petition their government for redress or grievance, if they have a grievance against another state, the original jurisdiction of that by the Constitution goes to the Supreme Court. But yet the Supreme Court just said in their decision last week, uh, Friday, that uh, they're not going to hear it. They tossed it out. So how do we make sure that states who are following the law and they are you know, receiving damages because of states that did illegal act- activities and constitutional actions, violating their own election law by having courts, by having secretaries of state, by having governors change election law, where do they go? to redress their grievances. And so I think it is very important, very imperative that we do start looking at how these states, uh, if we're going to have a more perfect union, which is what the preamble of the Constitution said, and abide by the Constitution, they have to look at how they can bind together and have a strong voice if the Supreme Court is going to continue to take this stance of not protecting law-abiding states, which, under the 14th Amendment, there is an equal protection under the law clause. So let's let's stick with the Supreme Court decision first, and then we'll get to the rest of this. Um, the Supreme Court uh, did reject hearing it. I think that was a massive mistake, especially when mm-hmm. half the country feels like nobody's listening to us. Nobody's even listening to us. Um, they should have listened. Whether that changed the outcome or not, it should have been ruled on. However, the one thing that was ruled on uh, was the the case itself? They threw it out, and even Scalia, uh, Barrett, uh, and not Scalia, but uh, God, why do we keep screwing him up with Alito? Alito and, Alito and, uh, and Thomas agreed with not hearing it. What does that tell well, you, if anything? Well, it tells me that I, I am very concerned that the Article Three of the Constitution says that courts are supposed to interpret law. Now, if all of a sudden we have justices that decide, you know, that they're not going to interpret the law, they have actually abdicated one of their enumerated duties and responsibilities. So they should have at least heard the case, should have allowed the evidence to come forward and make a decision on it and not just simply say we're not going to accept the case. And so, therefore, it comes back to my statement. What protection do law-abiding states have against states that are going out there and violating the Constitution and violating law. You cannot have states that all of a sudden decide, well, we're going to have this universal mail-in ballot thing. You don't have to have signature verifications. We'll accept these ballots any time after the the uh, November the 3rd election. And look at what has happened in New York. Claudia uh, Tenney is supposedly up by 12 ballots, and then guess what happens? Oh, we found 12 ballots. Mm-hmm. So if you want to talk about disenfranchising legal voters, it's these unconstitutional acts that are doing it. But like you just said, where do people go? Where do states go to have their voices heard? The right to petition their government for redress of grievances. That is the foundation 
of our Declaration of Independence that Thomas Jefferson wrote. So what did, what do I would imagine the AGs would need to get together and and do this together to make sure that they are blocking unconstitutional rulings, et cetera, et cetera. What does that mean to you in, in your eyes? How do they do that? Well, I mean, I am not a lawyer by trade. I'm just a simple, stupid paratrooper that took a note to the Constitution back in 1982. And I just see this as a threat. I see this as a fracture to our constitutional republic. So it's not just the state attorney generals. It's also the uh, state legislators. If you are a state legislator in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, or Wisconsin, you need to rise up. You need to stand up and say that we cannot allow the the uh, the judicial branch in our state or the executive branch in our state to supersede and to uh, usurp our, our our duties and our responsibilities. They cannot change law. We're the ones that have been duly elected by the people to do such. So I think another thing that needs to happen, these state legislatures need to bond together. And I would hope that the state legislatures in these respective four states, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, will take an action and take a stand today. Do you see that happening? Have you heard any rumblings of that? I have not. And it just goes back to me asking the question is the courage that it took uh, back in 1776 for those 56 men to stand up and establish these United States of America. I am really concerned that we still have that courage in this country. I have often thought of the only words that were spoken by George Washington during the actual Constitutional Convention. Um, they, of course, New York was looking for special exceptions and handouts, as usual. Uh, and Ben Franklin had fought and fought and fought against it. And they were starting to get, you know, starting to enter into really horse trading. And it was getting ugly. And the whole room stopped. And Ben Franklin looked at George Washington and he he stood up and the only thing he really said during the convention were these words let us raise a banner that the wise and the honest can repair the rest is in the hands of god uh and what he meant by that was do the right thing we haven't come this far to screw it up just do the right thing and it will be repairable in the future because they'll see that we tried to do the right thing and they'll want to do the right thing. But also, when you do the right thing, God's going to do what God's going to do and just accept the consequences one way or another. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, a lot of people took some uh, uh, consternation with that final sentence in my statement. But if you go to the preamble of our Constitution, what does it say? It says, we the people of these of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, what's the very first thing? Establish justice. So what our founding fathers knew was that in order to have a more perfect union, we had to have a Constitution. We had to have a rule of law. If we have gotten to the point where we don't believe in that rule of law, we're not going to have a more perfect union. And that's why I talked about a union, the words that they use, of law-abiding states that abide by the Constitution. That's how we have a perfect union. And you're right. Leaders, what I learned in the military, leaders know what right looks like. And leaders don't pick and choose when to do what is right, which comes back to what the Supreme Court uh, did last Friday. You do what is right all the time. You interpret the law. That is your responsibility by the Constitution. And now states have to be concerned, where do we go? 
to redress our grievances if the highest court in the land, which by original jurisdiction, that's the only court we could go to, decided to not listen to us. So, Alan, let me let me ask you a difficult question. Say all of these things fail and on the 20th of January or whatever it is, uh, the uh, Joe Biden is sworn in. And uh, that's just the ruling of the, the you know, courts and the system and the and the legislatures and all of that. What is it going to take to get people to uh, come back into the fold and uh, and not split apart? Well, I think when you just said the ruling of the courts, first and foremost, the courts need to hear the people. And if the courts refuse to, to hear the people, then you're going to have an issue come uh, January the 20th. And we cannot live in a country where every single time there is a Republican that is elected, George W. Bush, he's illegitimate. When Donald Trump is elected, he's illegitimate. Let's resist him. When Amy Coney Barrett is uh, brought onto the Supreme Court by constitutional process, she's illegitimate. Brett Kavanaugh is illegitimate. We cannot have progressive socialists that believe that they can rule by absolutism and totalitarianism and everything that doesn't agree with them is illegitimate. So I think that the first and foremost, the American people need to go by the uh, electoral process, the ballot process. But if you start to have uh, mandates, edicts, orders and decrees that are handed down, such as red flag laws, such as uh, Mm -hmm. mandatory uh, gun buybacks, you know, these things, I believe that the, the American people have a right to say no. Thank you very much, Lieutenant Colonel Allen West. Thanks for your stand and your time this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you. God you bless. Bet. God bless you. Merry Christmas. This is the best of the Glenn Beck program, and we really want to thank you for listening. So the number one question I am asked online, in person, Skywriting. I'm expecting skywriters to say, what do we do? Um, that is a topic, I think, for the first of the year, um, because it requires much more prayer uh, than I have uh, afforded it at this point. The thing that we I know we must do is recognize that much of what's going on is our fault because we didn't educate ourselves and we didn't educate our children. We thought we were because we put them. Think of how stupid this is. We put them in a state run school and expected that state run school that was getting federal funding to teach our children never trust the state or the federal government. That's not going to work out well. It's not going to work out well. Uh, and it hasn't. So the first thing we have to do is re-educate ourselves. And if you are looking for a Christmas gift or if you are just if you just want to make sure that you know the American story, I want you to buy the new book called and I have nothing to do with this, The American Story, The Beginnings. This is by David and Tim Barton. It is the best book that they have ever read uh, that they have ever uh, written. Uh, it is it tells our story in very short chapters and really takes you from just before the pilgrims 
and takes you through the founding and the separation of church and state and everything else. And the great thing is it has like, a, gosh, what is this? A 50 page, 50 page uh, footnotes in the back. So you don't have to you don't have to trust David Barton. Boy, it's boy. It's it's much more than 50 pages. Um, you don't have to trust David Barton, the author. Uh, you can go look it up for yourself. The American story. Get this for your family for Christmas. Get one for each kid. David, welcome to the program. Hey, guys, good to be with you. Uh, you're in a you're sound like you're in a bad sell spot, David. Um, uh, so tell me about the book. I you know, you gave this to me, what, about a month ago, month and a half ago. And it's just like you. I thought this was a galley. And you're like, hey, here's a new book. Read this. It's not a galley. It's the actual book. It's finished. Um, and and so I didn't say anything. I started to read it. Uh, and David, I, I think I finished the first. I sat down to read it. And I ended up at the Boston Massacre, which is page 129 before I got up. And I was like, oh, my gosh, the time has flown. Uh, it, this is fantastic. Fantastic, David. Thank you, sir. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of what we've learned over the years is that the story of America is best told in stories, amazingly. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we've gotten away from in, in recent decades and even the past century since progressives have come in. We just don't tell stories well anymore. And when you look at the stories and, you know, whether it be the Boston Massacre or whether it be back to the Pilgrims or back to even Columbus, who's got to be the greatest villain in the world today, and that's simply because we no longer know the story. We just know the narrative that, that groups like 16, 19, and others would, would push on us. And we just don't know the stories anymore. So that's what we felt was really important to get out, was to, to go back to the people, find out who they are, and tell the story of what occurred. And as you said, we footnoted it all. I, our objective is to document truth. And so we've gone back to original sources that we've been collecting for years. And that's really the basis of telling the American story. I mean, David, it is it's really fantastic. And you've told you've told Christopher Columbus story in, uh, gosh, 20. Uh, no, not even that. Uh, t- 10 pages, 10 pages. The everything you need to know about Christopher Columbus, at least just to get a handle on who he really was and what really happened. Um, and so you start there, then you go through the reformation, which is what, three or four pages. You tell them in such a clear and concise way, and you don't get bogged down in all of the stuff that usually is on your history test. That doesn't mean anything. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's, that was me, Glenn, because I, I was a math and science guy. I was the principal of the school. I taught math and science. I hated history. I did not like history. I stayed completely away from it until I started finding the stories. And and when we literally started collecting the old stuff, you go, my gosh, I've never heard this before. Who's this guy? Never, never heard of uh, a Wentworth Cheswell and never heard of a Jack Sisson, all these black heroes that suddenly started popping up in the American Revolution. You go, we wouldn't be America without these black heroes. I've never heard these guys. And so that's what got me into history was finding out all the stuff that I had never been exposed to. And what was considered to be a fairly, fairly rigorous educational training that I had, I'd never heard of any of these guys. And so now I love history because it is the stories, but that's not where America's been for a while. I think I was kind of vicariously typical of a lot of people 
uh, the reasons we don't like history. And that's that's what we're trying to get around with this book. You have seven chapters just on uh, the pilgrims to the Pur- uh, Puritans. Why? The pilgrims, as it turns out, and, and this is let me back up to say one of the things that we've done over the years is we've seen the attacks on different aspects of history and not knowing if they're true or not, we go back and say, well, is that accurate? And let's go back and see what the truth is. And so we'll research it. And so we're really aware of a lot of the things that attack America in so many ways. And the 1619 project is one of those. Now at the time we were doing this book three years ago, 1619 project hadn't come up yet, but we'd already seen the attacks coming from the professors, et cetera. And so the narrative is that America is founded as, as this great slavery. We were founded on slavery. Everything about America is slavery. The free market system is based on slavery. That's why you can't have it anymore. And everything is that way, except that's just not the way it was in America. Slavery did come in, but it didn't even come in in 1619. The first legal case of slavery is 1651, so they've missed that already. But it was not the Jamestown people that guided America. It was the pilgrims and what they brought. They're the ones who brought the free market. They're the ones who brought equality. They're the ones who brought great relations with Native Americans. They're the ones who established private property. The things that America believes in didn't come out of 1619 or Jamestown. They came out of the Plymouth people. They came out of the Bible-oriented Reformation people who said, hey, here's what the Scripture says about how we get along with others and about how we, how we work and how we have private property and how we have free market." And that's what the key to the narrative is. It's not the 1619, it's the Pilgrims. And so that's why we spent a little more time on that to show how that they developed all the good things of America, and they don't need to be torn down just because the 1619 Project wants to wrongly claim a bad narrative. And you cover um, uh, Jamestown uh, as well, and you talk about you talk about the Pilgrims. You know, when you say they were for fri- private property, they weren't always for private property. When they were coming over, they had uh, almost a united order. They had almost socialism or communism uh, is what they were going to do based on uh, everybody being, you know, a, a loving brother in Christ. We'll just put everything together. And it didn't work out. It did not work out. And that's one of the things I really like about, about the pilgrims is the courage they had to change their own lives and abandon what they had previously believed if they found what the truth was. And in their case, they grew up in a world that everybody in the world at that time thought slavery was fine. Everybody in the world at that time thought having, an, uh, having a top-heavy government was a good thing to do, whether it was a king or a monarch or something else. Uh, everybody in the world at that time was, was essentially practicing socialism slash communism. And so that's what they've grown up in. But as they take the individual time to give them the scriptures and say, wait a minute, did you see what that scripture just said? That's not what we've been doing for the last 500 or 700 years. And so they are really, really great thinkers in the sense that they would look at things objectively and say, hey, here's what the Scripture says, but we're not doing that. Let's do what the Scripture says, because that's going to work out better. And they did have the courage to take themselves on and change so many things that they did. And so even as the governor, William Bradford, said, he said, we, we had the socialistic system as if we were wiser than God. And then we found what the truth was. And that's what I appreciate about the pilgrims is the fact that they were looking for truth. And when they found it, they had the courage to apply it. And if they had not have done that, we would not have the model that we have from that culture. And it's a great model for America to follow. They, they are really uh, great examples of using the scientific theory. Are they not? They are. And, and you know, for me, I have 
I'm on a new crusade right now, and, and I have never in my life thought that truth is as important as I think it is now. And I, I am sold on that, and I know that there's areas probably where I don't know what the truth is yet, and I've got to find that. And so I, I'm learning how to dig things out that I've never had to dig out before, and I have come to the point where I can no longer accept uh, what any – we've gone through the last several decades with good intentions. We didn't think our teachers were specifically lying to us, and we thought they were doing what they could. We didn't think the media was specifically lying to us, and now we don't believe that anymore. And so the question is, who can I trust, how can I trust, and where can I find what's accurate and what's true, whether it be in the election stuff or whether it be in what's going with education or economics or anything else. There are folks now who are just repeating stupid stuff because that's what they were told, and we just can't trust the good intentions anymore. And so I've really been on a quest for truth and going back and finding out what is true. And a lot of the things we're talking about in that book really have not been presented through American education in probably 80 or 90 years. And so it's been a rediscovery journey for me, but it, it takes that scientific type of inquiry to go back and test everything and check it out and, and look at the, the results, check the evidence. And I think that's, that's where America is going to have to get back to is not only do we have to have a love of the truth, now we have to go find the truth. And that's something that, that we have not had to do in America for 100 years. We've trusted our teachers. We've trusted our leaders. We've trusted the political people. You know, we may have had differences, but they weren't at, 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 in their intents bad. We can't make that assumption anymore. And no. so we're in a whole different period. And that's really kind of what has driven me to, to do what we did in this book. Well, David, you uh, accomplished it and then some, as I say, and I and, you know, I mean this because I, I wrote it to you. I'm not just saying this on the air. I wrote it to you uh, after I finished the first hundred and twenty some pages uh, in one sitting. I said, David, this is an exceptional book. I mean, it is the one history book that I would urge every home to have. There's only another the only other book I have really just pounded on that is the 5,000 year leap. It is the one that gives you all of the principles of America. And if you understand those principles, you understand how you can recreate it. You also understand what's wrong with America. This, the American story, the beginnings needs to be in every listener home. It don't, don't buy it to digital download, buy it to have a paper copy of it in your home. Uh, the American Story, The Beginnings by David and Tim Barton. Uh, David, can you buy this on Amazon? Yes, sir. It's available in all major outlets. Da, 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 da.